we think of sin has a huge impact on how we think about Jesus as Savior. So if you think that you're wretched from your birth and that there's no good in you and that you're a terrible, miserable worm who doesn't even deserve a shred of love, um, the idea of Jesus as a Savior who comes into the world to, to overcome your nothingness and make you something um, in the image of God so that you can then be saved. You know, it's theologically makes sense. It's very compelling. But if you keep that view of sin, you're never going to do anything about that view of Jesus. Mm. Is, that, is that Jesus is just, you know, the sacrificial son of God or this, you know, sort of glorious being who is so different than us, who deigns to love us and all this kind of language of really sort of Christ superiority. Yeah. Um, but the text is really rather different. You know, the, the gospels are show a different story. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Seth. This is the show. I'm glad you're here. Now then, it's been a while since I did this. And um, honestly, I hate that sometimes I do. But I did want to give just a quick couple PSAs. So did you know that each and every episode, as best as I can, is transcribed? There are 15 or 16 that are not transcribed, and I'm working on those. But I'm doing my best to ensure that this show is accessible to as many ears, eyes, minds, people as possible. Did you also know that there are so many other things that go into this show? The biggest aspect of that is time. And uh, yeah, so here is a plea. I need your help to continue to grow in a way that is sustainable. If you have gotten anything out of any of these free episodes of this show from any of the guests, or maybe from me, but probably from the guests, I need you to consider supporting the show over on Patreon. And you'll find links in the transcript right here. Or you can go down to the show notes or the website. Or There's so many ways. And I get it if some of you can't. If you can, hit the button. I appreciate it. Now then, Diana Butler Bass has been a favorite of mine for a long time. She writes well. She speaks well. She is hilariously sarcastic on social media, which I, I absolutely love. And she's written a new book. Now, she uh, it's been years since I've spoken with her, but Diana is one of the first people that ever came on the show. and And that group of people hold a special place for me because those people were fueled to a confidence fire that I think was needed for myself. Either way, so she wrote a new book called Freeing Jesus, and I'm not sure how to describe it. And this book that she's written is full of wonderful stories and some heartbreaking ones. But it is a story about how you can still be a Christian in a world that seems disillusioned with any work on who Jesus is. And 
seems to be entirely worried about you just believing what I believe, or I believe what you believe, or we believe what our neighbors believe. And we're all terrified to talk about it. So I'm going to stop rambling. I think that's what I'm doing. And I'm going to roll the tape for Diana Butler Bass. Here we go, everyone. You are lovely. Like the stars above. You are lovely. And you are still alive. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, my kids will say, You're different in the morning than you are in the evening. And I'm like, Well, I'm, I'm, I'm tired. And, you know. So's the sun, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. All right. Well, let's get going. Diana Bass, welcome back to the show. I don't think I've spoken to you since like 2018, something like that. It's been a while, but I will thank you. Uh, I don't think I've ever told you this before. So you were among like the first 10 or 15 people that ever said, sure, I'll come on to some no-name podcast. And it's people like you that gave me confidence to continue to do a podcast. So it's been too many years, but welcome back. I'm glad you're here. Well, that was in the the pre-pandemic days, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> long, long ago. Yeah. Yeah, that was even pre-Trump days. I think you were, I think when you were on, we had talked about writing a book on gratitude during, oh the, during the election as you're like, like, I remember you talking about that. But again, it's been a long time since I've even listened yeah. to that episode. But, oh my um, gosh. So it's been some time. It's been some well, time. Well, congratulations for staying with it. And I know that your audience has grown. I see, you know, chatter about your podcast and different social media. So oh, good for you. I should get in social media more. I get in. I like things. <laughs> I get off. I can't. It makes me angry. So, um, but yeah, I enjoy doing it. There are worse hobbies. I could waste money on golf or something else. Instead, I, I read books about God. So there are worse things that you could do. So uh, however, I frame these a little bit different. And I ask, a, I script a lot less questions because... I don't know. Maybe I'm more confident in myself. Doesn't matter. But whom would you say you are? Like when I say what is or who is Diana Bass and like what is that? What do you answer to that? Um you know, it's a funny question because in some ways I I open the book with the question the apostle Paul asked to Jesus, "Who are you?" And um I make the point in that part of the book that Jesus really doesn't answer the question. Instead, all we have to go on is Paul's experience of Jesus over time. And it's almost as if Paul's trying to answer that question uh, for his, his whole life. And I thought about that, of course, in relationship to Jesus for the book that we're going to talk about in a moment. But I also thought about it in relationship to my own life. Um, and that is, do we ever really know ourselves? Um, I, as a writer, a big part of the spiritual quest that I would say that I've been on is to understand um, who I am in this world and, and what my, what my calling is. And I just, I turned 62, not very long ago, just a couple weeks ago. And it's very surprising to me that at 62, I'm still asking myself that question mm. because you, you would think that I would know the answer. <laughs> um <laughs> 
you know, the, I mean, the basics are always there. You know, I was, uh, I'm Diana. I'm a, a writer, um, a gardener, a, a mom, a, a wife. And, you know, I love books and ideas. I'm a teacher. And, and I, I say, say those things. It almost sounds like those are things I do. But the truth of the matter is, is that every one of those signifiers that sounds like an activity, a writer, a gardener, a mom, a wife, um, it's, it's far more than something I just do. Mm. Uh, those are the things that emerge from my engagement with others and the world with love. Yeah. And so they wind up being who I am as well as what I do. Yeah. Your gardener comment makes me want to ask you a question. I'm going to ask it, but don't feel obligated to answer it. My wife bought tulips for Easter because we had some family over because we're all vaccinated and we're like, cool, let's, let's do this. <laughs> um, and I'm like, I feel like we should plant these outside, but it's, Virginia and it's still April and there was frost on the ground this morning, but the high is 80 and I know it's going to kill them. Don't answer that because I don't want to talk about gardening, <laughs> but that was what popped up in my head where I'm like, I really want to save these tulips because don't, I think they come back every year. However, they do. I don't. Anyway, I, I'll figure it out. I'll this is out. what we get for living in the northernmost part of the South. It's awful. Like <laughs> I was, like my son wanted to plant. We built a huge garden last year and a big compost bin and that type of stuff because mm -hmm. we needed things to do. And he's like, let's plant potatoes. I was like, when when do we do we plant them now? When do we plant potatoes? I <laughs> I have no idea when we plant potatoes, but let's go buy some and plant potatoes, um, which we did last year and we we ate them all. I loved it. We made homemade French fries and everything. oh, was, wonderful! Yeah, it was great. It, so they worked. They were baby potatoes, but that's probably because we don't know what we're doing, or I don't know. It doesn't matter. They still were edible. Um, so you referenced your book, which is called Freeing Jesus, and then it has the one of the longer subtitles I've seen in some time, um, Rediscovering Jesus as Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence, um, which, if memory serves, those are the titles of the chapters, uh, except for the last one. But we'll, we'll get there. Um, so why... All right, so there are countless books. What made you sit down and say, we need another book on Jesus? Because I haven't figured out yet if this is theology or memoir or a blending of the two and how those two kind of interplay, but what's kind of the story with, with this text? The truth of the matter is I never sat down and said, I'm going to write a book about Jesus. As a matter of fact, of all of the subjects I ever thought I would tackle as a writer, Jesus was at the very bottom of the list. Um, my And part of my rationale for that is, you know, I, ha I have a PhD in church history. And so my specialty area is American religion. And uh, I'm still pretty sensitive, even, even though I've not been in the formal academy for many years, I'm still pretty sensitive about people's areas of expertise, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I have so many friends um, who are New Testament scholars or who are scholars of early Christianity. And so I, I always felt when I was with any of those friends, like, this is not something I can write about. You know, I can write with confidence, a lot of confidence um, about religious trends and religion and politics and how religion functions in 19th, 20th century America. I mean, there's all kinds of things that I feel like I know um, intellectually really well. But as far as knowing the biblical theological source material for writing a book about Jesus, it was a little uh, scary. So, so um, it it came about uh, 
mostly because I was going to write a sort of a longer project on theology and it was going to be a far more general project, almost like a, a theological handbook for people who no longer were comfortable in church mm. or people who felt like they wanted to leave church or have let let church um, to explore, you know, how you could approach different theological issues, even though you might not be part of a formal institution anymore. So it was going to be that kind of book and um, kind of a, a map, yeah. as it were, yeah. to theology. And so when I started the project, I just um, decided, oh, I'm going to write the chapter on Jesus first. I don't know why. I thought that there's any number I could have written the chapter on creation first that might have made more sense, especially with some of my former work. Mm. Um, but I just sat down at my desk. It was in the summer of 2019. So it was the summer before the pandemic began. And I just started writing and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. I wound up writing something like 60, 70, 80 pages. It was a lot of pages. <laughs> That's a third of a book. <laughs> on Jesus. <laughs> yeah, you think the subtitle is long. Um, <laughs> and, and as I was writing, I realized, oh, my gosh, you know, this is not a handbook to doctrine. I'm writing a book about Jesus. Mm. So I called my publisher and told them that. And we had sort of a little back and forth. And... Lo and behold, um, that's where it came from. Yeah, yeah. The uh, are you still going to write that? Because and it, I'll, we'll go back to your other book because I think I saw. I don't know if it's based on census data or what it's based on, but like overall, I guess Western Christianity is now like below the majority, and I don't even know where that number is. I saw the results the other day, and I can't remember the data from that. I think that's still needed, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I saw those polls too. And in a very real way, my work um, since 2012 has been around that coming tsunami of demographic change um, mm -hmm. regarding people's religious affiliation. And the, the poll that you saw was, is a pretty simple one. It just showed that in the year uh, 2019, because this was the data crunching for that happened during 2020. We haven't seen the 2020 data yet. Mm -hmm. um, it's always about a 14 month lag period on this kind of data. Um, so on that, the data, the most recent data available, the percentage of people who identify um, as religious, people who attend a church, synagogue, mosque, temple, et cetera, has slipped uh, to being underneath of under 47% of the population, yeah. under yeah. 50%. So except it's 47%. For, except for, I think, Republican white evangelicals and the Southern Baptists. Those numbers apparently climbed, which I found really. I'd have to go know. look at that because it's yeah. interesting because um, white Republican Southern Baptist uh, evangelicals have been for the last 10 years in decline, pretty yeah. steep decline. Yeah. And so, so they might've had an up year, but yeah. um, that's in the overall trend of a, of a lot of um, erosion. Yeah. But so, so the numbers show whatever the case of the numbers, they show a pattern that has now going on for 15, almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. And that is this, First, at first slow and now precipitous decline into being a multi-religious pluralistic society um, with an incredible number of people who are 
um, secular humanists and just religiously um, uninterested. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's, it's a big change, you it know, is. and, and that's. Uh, so the answer is well, yes, then you're right. You're yeah, still going to write that book. Oh, <laughs> you know, I don't know if I'm going to write that book per se. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen it yet. Uh, part of the reason why I'm really glad I didn't write that book is because my friend Brian McLaren sort of wrote this book. <laughs> I have that book. I haven't read it. Um, and I can't even remember the, it's over there. I can't, but I know what, what you're talking about. I have it. Yeah. I haven't read it yet. I want, it's on the list. It's called Faith After Doubt. Yes. And that's it. um, it's green or teal. Yes. Yeah, and Brian and I were working on these projects at the same time. We're we're very good friends. And um, I did not realize that he was writing a, a larger project on basically uh, theology. Mm -hmm. And he didn't realize I was writing this project on Jesus. But when people read the two books together, we've already gotten so many comments. That it's mm. like, oh, these two books are like cousins <laughs> <laughs> and they are so so i think that the project of the general theology is probably uh Handled. been at least put at rest for a while yeah. by well, this book which does have a lot of theology in it actually. yes it does yeah so what are you freeing jesus from what where I'm, is that i'm freeing jesus from a lot of different things i'm freeing jesus from um some of the accretions that have been put on Jesus um, in terms of just, just absolutely rigid church interpretations. Mm. You know, there are some of us who still do go to church. And one of the things that happens often in churches, we're handed a plate of approved interpretations of Jesus week after week, after week, after week. And the, the struggle I think for some people is, what happens when your own experience and those interpretations don't mesh. Mm. And so this project in many ways is to open the doors and let regular folks say the way that they've experienced Jesus matters. Yeah. So that's one thing that I'm freeing Jesus from, but then certainly the other thing that I'm freeing Jesus from it, the church is not the only institution responsible for putting sort of narratives around Jesus that are hard to live with. Um, there's a cultural narrative around Jesus in the United States. And that narrative is very simple. The narrative is the idea that Jesus is absolutely the divine son of God, whom God sent into the world in order that, that, that Jesus would die on the cross for the sins mm -hmm. of every person. And that you have to accept that Jesus in your heart be born again, and you're going to be saved forever and go to heaven. And so when most Americans think about Jesus, they think about that theology. Yeah. They think, and they think about, you know, people holding up John 316 signs at football games or Jesus save signs at insurrections at the nation's capital. Mm. And in both of those cases, um, Boy, if, if Jesus doesn't mind getting freed from those that that set of interpretations, uh, there will be nothing left of Jesus um, yeah. in another uh, 20 years. Yeah, I want to lean on that sin part. So there's a part in here in your chapter on Savior where you say Eastern theologians understood creation as good and maintained that the original goodness had been disordered and obscured, but not destroyed by sin. And you go on to talk about Adam's sin as a propensity to sin. And then you talk about how the Western church has mostly spoon-fed what you told me of you were born wretched, can't stand to be in your presence, and that's why. So how, how do you dissect that a bit? Because 
when I talk about religion to people, first off, my views on heaven and hell are slightly different than most people's. And as well as uh, I don't like penal substitutionary atonement, which is a much fancier way of saying what you're kind of getting at here. But how are you freeing Jesus from that? And then what role does Jesus then play when we're talking about salvation? The narrative about sin is one of the major narratives throughout the book. And um, it really truly was the case in my life that part of the inhibitions that I felt toward being completely free was this story about original sin and the pervasiveness of sin. And so there were several junctures, I think all of which I relate in the narrative, where I had to look at that story about what happened in Genesis 2, 3, and 4 um, in an entirely different way. I'll tell you, if I was going to write a book, a, a different book on a particular doctrinal issue, I'd probably write on Genesis um, mm. 1 through 4, which I think are probably four of the most important chapters in the Bible. Yeah. So my struggle with sin, what kept happening is that people kept telling me you know that i was that i was that i was really truly evil and when you tell a person especially a woman or a person of color or someone who is otherwise marginalized in our society a gay person transgender person uh that they're you know they're just wretched they're evil they're not worth anything it reinforces all of the the hierarchies of privilege that we have in Western culture. And it's the, those doctrines of sin have functioned to keep people who are at lower levels of the social pyramid uh, in their place. Mm. And, and so there, I think there's been just a tremendously negative effect of those doctrines of sin on, on Western culture. And so a lot of people in other parts, uh, you know, other parts of the the, the, the Christian hierarchical pyramid uh, who aren't at the top um, have chafed against that vision. And, and yet it's within that same, you know, sort of structure that or that chafing against that structure that so many people who are sort of left out of the social conversation have actually found jesus i mean it's one of the most sort of stunning things um in say african-american experience yeah. in the united states i was just looking at a set of tweets by a fellow named dante stort on twitter and he, he's a, a black black man and he was saying you're part of the quest of black theology it's not just to resist white supremacy it's not just to um you know tell tell white Christianity that it's wrong, um, but is to give an authentic voice uh, to the experience of black America with Jesus and with God. Mm. And, and that authentic voice questions, you know, things like that, that view of sin. And certainly, certainly women have questioned that view of sin um, through feminist theology for a half century now. Yeah. So, so, so what I, the, the short answer to that is how we think of sin 
has a huge impact on how we think about Jesus as Savior. So if you think that you're wretched from your birth and that there's no good in you and that you're a terrible, miserable worm who doesn't even deserve a shred of love, um, the idea of Jesus as a Savior who comes into the world to, to overcome your nothingness and make you something um, in the image of God so that you can then be saved. You know, it's theologically makes sense. It's very compelling. But if you keep that view of sin, you're never going to do anything about that view of Jesus. Mm. Is, it, is that Jesus is just, you know, the sacrificial son of God or this, you know, sort of glorious being who is so different than us, who deigns to love us and all this kind of language of really sort of Christ superiority. Yeah. Um, but the text is really rather different. You know, the, the gospels are show a different story. They show a guy who came out and came from God and was born into this world and hung out with really strange people. Yeah. Um, who critics said, Hey, look at that guy. He hangs out with drunkards and tax collectors, you know? And so the Jesus of the new Testament is really rather different than oftentimes the Jesus of our theological cultural imaginations. Yeah. And so, so to get back to that, you know, I think is really important is to say, well, who is this Jesus really? And how, how, how do my stories fit with that big story? You know, the church is told, am I awkward with it? I have, have I rejected it? Is my story corrected by the, the big stories, et cetera. So that the sin piece is yeah. probably the most significant theological aspect of this book. Do you feel as though, and I've asked this question a couple of different ways, a couple of different times, but if fear is like that stick or that switch of how you're training a horse in the right way to go or the bridle or whatever, I don't ride horses, but you know what I mean. Um, mm -hmm. Do you feel as though our faith is prepared to allow that to go away? Uh, because there's, I feel like it, it becomes, people often say that I'm focused on the wrong things because they're worried about saving from something like they, they, they need to be rescued from something. And I'm like, no, no, we're, we're supposed to be doing something. Do you feel as though organized religion or faith is, is prepared to take away that fear of, of original sin, especially as the church is related to it? Well, no institution is ever prepared to give up fear as a motivator. Mm. Um, you know, I think that we can, we can, you can see that in our education system. You have to pass certain kinds of benchmarks or you're not going to go to college and you're going to be poor for the rest of your life. So fear becomes one of the ways that we motivate students to succeed. Um, same thing in politics is that you terrify your base voters mm. that, you know, the other side is, you know, horrible. Yeah. They're going to take away all your money, what have you. And um, so you keep them from voting for the other guy by creating a culture of fear. And um, religion 
you know, institutional religion does the same. So in that sense, you know, as in as far as churches are human institutions, I fully expect fear to continue on as a motivating <laughs> factor for quite some time. Um, but but the interesting piece of it is that people are letting go of it on their own. They're unwilling. I, I mean, I think those statistics help to show that. Is there some, you know, there's a theological rebellion of some sort brewing mm -hmm. that shows up in those statistics. And it's not just, oh, I don't believe in God anymore, or I don't like the church, or, you know, I, I'm, I'm angry at corruption. Yeah. There, there, are, there are theological questions at the basis of people leaving church about issues that have never been well addressed um, by Christianity in particular. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that one of the issues is this issue of sin is that people now are kind of looking in the mirror and they're saying to themselves, you know, this particular vision of the doctrine of sin, one, it doesn't really fit with my life. And two, if I did embrace it, and I tell stories about this in the book, mm -hmm. if I did embrace it, it became it became self-abuse. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen lots of people talk about how the, the, the darkest visions of human nature um, lent themselves uh, toward being unhealthy mentally. And um, that certainly was part of the case for me. So, I think that there is a questioning of that that set of doctrines going on and people are just saying, okay, well, if the doctrine is that I'm a sinner from my birth and that there is no health in me and that Adam and Eve had sex and passed sin through every human being through our DNA. 6,000 years ago. <laughs> right, 6,000 <laughs> 6, years ago. What am I, you know, I don't believe that, you right. know, and people are literally saying, I don't believe that. Yeah. So, so the good news in all of this is that there have actually been other Christian options. And some of those options are in Eastern Christianity. Uh, some of those options are more in the African-American tradition. Some of those options are found in traditions that were actually deemed heretical by the church. It's because the church wanted to control this doctrine because yeah. uh, if they didn't control it, they couldn't control human beings yeah 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 and so i want to i want to ask you to freestyle a bit and feel free to punt the question if you don't want to because it's not in the book but i found myself at the end wondering if you were to write another chapter i would like it to focus on freeing jesus from prosperity like like the prosperity gospel so i'm curious if you have anything just that comes to mind when you're like yeah if i was going to try to address that here's the angle that i would approach because i feel like that is America's original sin, the ability to manifest wealth and Jesus is on our side and that's why we're loaded and that's why we're able to spend so much money and waste so much money instead of loving human beings. Are you able to, are you willing to try to tackle that even though I know it's not a chapter in there? Well, I think I'm laughing because that more or less was a theme in my last book in in the book i wrote about gratitude called mm. and the book's called grateful mm. and um in that book i sort of i kick against both the prosperity gospel 
within Christianity, but it's also a book that's more widely written towards a mixed audience, people mm-hmm. who are Christians, people who are not. And um, the other piece of that is that there's not only Christian prosperity gospels, but there are secular prosperity gospels. And gratitude has often been part of that. Mm. The idea is if you're really, it's like weird, but the idea is if you're grateful for what you have, you'll get more. Mm-hmm. And so gratitude becomes a, a strange sort of mechanism into health and wealth. Mm. And um, so in, in the last book I wrote, <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> I do talk about that very directly. And in, you know, I want to just sort of put these two pieces together a little bit um, because even though I don't hold to the ideas of original sin in the way that I know certain streams of Western Christianity want me to hold those options. Um, I also don't deny the, the existence of evil and of real sin. Um, and that's been the sort of the false dichotomy that's been put out, especially in the last century or century and a half. And the, the false dichotomy is something like this. Well, if you don't believe in original sin, how can you explain the fact of the 20th century when there were two world wars and a, um, Stalin's genocide and all of these terrible things that happened, um, you know, and on and on and on. And the 20th century was an incredibly violent uh, century with, you know, massive death and, you know, mm-hmm. especially the, with the Holocaust. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a brutal century. And so people say, isn't the 20th century like an, in and of itself completely an example of original sin? And so if you don't believe in original sin, then you must be just sort of, you know, turning your head and not really understanding uh, what happened historically. And I think that's just really false. Mm. I think that that's a that's a bad narrative Um, because you can understand what happened with all of that violence and sin in the 20th century without appealing to a gene that's manipulated through sexual intercourse that's been passed down through the human race, you know, since Adam and Eve. And the way you can explain it is quite simply, it's actually the way simple, the way that the Jews have explained the same, you know, sort of story, the same textual uh, tradition. And the, the way that Jews talk about it is that sin and evil continue in the world. And it's a result of human choice. Yeah. Um, badly formed conscience when people go against uh, what they know that they are actually supposed to do and they, they make the wrong moral choice. And what happens in Jewish theology and these alternative streams of Christian theology is the idea that if you get enough human beings over a long enough time making terrible choices is that we become born into a world that's like polluted mm. um, with evil. It's, it's like drinking from a polluted stream. And so it doesn't mean you're evil, but it means that you are taking into yourself because of the environment um this you know really mucky horrible water mm. that makes you sick and so the 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 quest then becomes of course 
is is to find that life-giving stream is to is to to be able to understand how polluted the environment is and do something about it yeah 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 and do something perhaps make choices that further shalom instead of missing the mark and i I know i just blended old testament and and greek translation of new testament for sin it's okay um no that's it's completely legitimate because i'm pretty sure it's what jesus did Well, that's so. a compliment for the day. That's why I put on the tie, Diana. That's it right there. That's it right there. Um, so I, I do. So I forget what chapter it is in here, uh, but you talk about as Jesus, and it's literally what you just took in there, like Jesus as prophet and priest. And you're talking about him as, I think it's in the chapter on teacher, where there's like a, a decade between him teaching people as a child in the synagogues and then coming back later. What are we as followers that read the, hopefully read the Bible and other scriptures, what are we supposed to do when we're accused of heresy? And, and that's what people say, like, well, you're just twisting this to make it fit what it needs to fit for today, fit for the narrative. Cause I get accused of that often. And then I read you saying that you're like, yeah, but that's, that's what the prophets do. Um, you know what I mean? Like, how does, how do that, how do those two relate? Because I, I struggle to answer that question very well outside of, I just, that's just how I see Jesus, like one of the things that comforts me is the knowledge, uh, and and this again is this is the firmer ground of church of being trained as a church historian, is that nearly every significant person who writes theology anywhere in the past, at some point or another in his or her career, was deemed a heretic, mm. and um, it's very few people who passed the orthodoxy test beginning to end at, and, um, you know, so even Augustine what had to be helped, uh, by the church in this, because, you know, one of Augustine's hugest opponents was Pelagius and they had this argument over sin and, um, the, people say now, Oh, the Pelagius, you know, that's just heresy. That's just heresy. That's just heresy. Mm. Um, but, uh, it took the church six tries uh, to actually get Pelagius to be deemed a heretic and get his name sort of written out of church history. So it wasn't it wasn't an easy attempt. It wasn't like, oh, Pelagius, you're a heretic and you're gone. It, I believe it was six six separate attempts on the part of the the church to silence him, and. Um, then, of course, what happens is his works get scattered, a lot of stuff gets destroyed. Um, we wind up having very little original stuff written by Pelagius, and all we wind up with for many centuries. We do have some of it, and a lot of it's been rediscovered in only fairly recent years. But, um, but for much of church history, all we had is what Augustine wrote about Pelagius. Mm. So, so what we have is what the victor of the argument yeah. wrote. And that stuff was preserved by the church after six attempts to get Pelagius declared a heretic. And, you know, that's just one story of how this works within church history is that we, the, the most important thing in some ways in church history is also the bit the the most trite phrase that that almost everybody knows about history and that is victors write history yeah and yeah. Th- and what becomes left to us 
is the victory victors interpretations of the people who questioned them and so if you were burned at the stake or if your book was declared her heretical or what have you um, usually all that's left of you at the end of that process is what the church wants to be left and so therefore you look like you know you really look like a heretic to everybody who comes afterwards what i think is sort of fascinating is when the church changes its mind and um, that does happen. So you get someone like Joan of Arc, who is declared a witch and a heretic and, you know, has a lousy end in France, um, in jail, raped and burned at the stake. Congratulations. Um, and um, and the church did it to her. And then later, you know, they turn around and say, oops, we were wrong. Yeah. And, um, you know. I'm sure that was a comfort to her uh, <laughs> you know, all these years later, you know, uh, but now she's St. Joan of Arc, yeah. you know, and so, so the church even admits that this process of the making of orthodoxy and the application of heresy, infidelity, and, and all these, you know, blasphemy laws um, has been imperfect at best. And um, there are also, you know, people who are in scientific communities who who suffered similar fates in their own lives. And then, you know, years later, they are picked up and and lifted up as as great heroes. Yeah. So so I don't mind when people call me a heretic because, boy, am I in good company yeah. and, um, you know, bring on the crown uh, because uh, <laughs> I figure in another, you know, 150 years, the people who usually are the ones who are screaming blasphemer and heretic the loudest, those people are usually forgotten. Mm. Um, and it's the people who were on the other end of that who are often looked back at and said, oh, my gosh. You know, that person was really trying to tell us something and we mm. weren't unwilling to listen at the time. So bring it on. It's fine. Yeah. Um, so can I ask a question? One word that I would expect to see is the word Christ in a book about Jesus. But except for, I want to say like five or six times is all that it's there. And half of those times it's in the title of books that you're quoting from like Iliadello and, and a few other people. So they're not even your words. It's like quoting something else. So why the aversion to the word Christ? And I ask that because you have a chapter called Universal Jesus, what I, which I would assume would have that in there, and it doesn't. And why? Is there, is there an aversion? Is it, an, it can't be an omission because um, there's just no way that there's not. You don't write 80 pages accidentally about Jesus and not write the word Christ. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm laughing because you're the first person to notice. Oh, <laughs> well, congratulations! I, I didn't notice until I read the part where you quoted Ilya Delo, and I—it's either Delo or Delio. I always say it wrong. Um, mm -hmm. And then I realized when I read the title of her book, which is another long title of a book, and it has the word in there, Christ. And I was like, that, and I—it's I, literally highlighted. I'm like, I think this might be the first time. So then I pulled up a PDF copy that I have from the Net Galley and just Control F'd it and just searched for the word Christ, and it only came up with a handful of of places. So. Yeah, it was an accidental thing. But why the aversion or the omission or whatever that is? Well, you asked me at the beginning, you know, why I wrote a book about Jesus. And, you know, what could you say that hasn't already been said? Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, at the beginning of the project, I actually went and I looked, you know, on my shelf at the, I, I mean, I have an entire bookcase almost. It's full of books about Jesus. <laughs> and and um, all of them 
with only a very few exceptions are about Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And um, my book is about my experience and my experience doesn't deny the idea of Christ as we meet Christ in uh, the creeds or the more Christ parts of the of the epistles in particular uh, you know but the 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 truth of it is, is that mostly when people you know met jesus mostly in the gospels it's they're meeting a friend you know they're they're meeting a teacher they're meeting someone who is very human and um you know the the few times when somebody figures out oh you are the messiah you know Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I love, I, I remember when I first took a New Testament class and learned about the messianic secret. And I thought that was so amazing. You know, it's because that's all we want to talk about is yeah. this is the, the, he's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. And um, yeah, that was the one thing that Jesus said, don't tell. <laughs> so, and even, you know, in the resurrection stories, as we tape here right after Easter, we have this um, account of, uh, well, I mean, there are a couple of interesting accounts. We have one account that was read in church this past Sunday of the three women coming mm-hmm. to the tomb and uh, Jesus isn't there. And and uh, then they're told, Shh, don't tell anybody, you know, keep it, a, still keep it a secret. Yeah. Um, apparently they don't because we know the story. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't listen. <laughs> No, I didn't listen to that yeah. one. But uh, but like in the story of uh, Mary Magdalene uh, coming to the tomb that's in the Gospel of John, which is my favorite, favorite one, um, is that her first word to Jesus after you know, she figures out that this is Jesus and not a gardener um, is that she says, oh, Raboni, Rabbi teacher and so she doesn't actually say oh christ you're the you're the messiah she that's not the the title that she trots out upon seeing the risen jesus and instead she trots out this title that was probably what she called him when he was alive Mm. you know he was her beloved teacher uh raboni uh who you know she was probably the one who used her hair to anoint Jesus' feet. Mm. And so the, you know, it's a, so I wanted to capture that sense, Mm. you know, not the the Christological glory piece, because that's everywhere. You know, all you have to do is go to church on Sunday and you're going to get a story about the Christ. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But to affirm these other stories, like the story of Mary Magdalene, where, you know, she sees Jesus and she says, teacher, Um, you know, that's really an image for this book is like, well, when you see Jesus, you know, who do you really see? Who have you known? Hmm. And for most of us, it's not going to be I don't think that for most people, the first words that spring to mind are a creed that we recite during baptism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I want to talk about the conclusion, but I'm not because people need to buy the book. But I will say, and I literally just put this out on the internet a minute ago, 
I plan to read that with my daughters this weekend, uh, specifically that little speech that you have there. There's the last paragraph, and I don't want you to read it because I do want people to buy the book. The story that you tell there when you're interf- intermixed with a bunch of other women in faith. And Anyway, it's a beautiful chapter mm-hmm. about, about the voice of women, and I think little girls should hear it. So we won't talk about that conclusion because people should read it for themselves. But I am curious, and this is a question I've asked everyone. So when you try to wrap words around what you mean when you say God, what do you say to that? Well, gosh, that's, that's my vocation. Hmm. Um, And it's actually the most humbling of all possible vocations. You know, it would be so much easier, I think, you know, if I'd stayed a college professor and you had vocational benchmarks of, you know, getting tenure, becoming the department chair, perhaps becoming a dean, you know, or certain kinds of awards, you know, is that most of us, when we have vocations, there are paths of recognizing success and achievement. But when you're a writer, you know, there are some things like that, you know, does your book land on the New York Times bestseller list or what have you. But, you know, the subject that I'm writing about is this subject about God. And, you know, what's the benchmark of achievement for that? Um, I, I always hold myself accountable to letting my words carry a reality that moves beyond the words Mm. so i recognize even while i am putting words into the world that are that try to explain to teach to point towards um divine things um i also know that those words are extremely limited and the very best thing that my words can do is to cause someone to sort of read what's on the page and then stop and feel the presence of what's beyond the page. Mm. And so it's not easy. (laughs) Um, And yet I, I keep at it. And that's, that's to me, there are no words that you can really explain, you know, who God is or how we truly encounter God, Uh, you know, or even the question, if God, you Mm. know, um, there's lots of questions regarding Mm. this presence um, Mm. that I do trust is at the core of of the universe. Um, So, you know, I just let that mystery enfold me. And then as a writer, do my very best to work out of that mystery. Hmm. And if I succeed sometimes and people are moved by the letters that I put on a page, um, I am deeply gratified. Yeah. That question of if God, so I have a 43 minute drive to work, 30, 35, 43, whatever. That's going to wrestle with me the whole car ride. So um, I'm going to say in advance, I don't know that I appreciate that question because I'll have nothing else but to think with as I go over the Blue Ridge Mountains. Um, with that question, but it's okay. It's okay. I also don't <laughs> think that people, humans specifically, are good at stopping and wrestling with things. You got you got that part in there, and we don't we don't need to backtrack and talk about it. Where you'd ask them to read that first part of like John, um, I think it's fourteen, 
verse six or something like that, or maybe it's 13. And she's like, no, I'm going to keep reading because that belongs. Like you have those two hinge on each other. They have to be together, which is a fun, it's a fun thing. Diana, where do you want people to go to? Obviously they should buy the book just to read the last chapter, if nothing else alone, but they really should read the full book. And then you've got like a Substack, you've got a website, you're on all the social, like, where do you want people, where should they go to do whatever the things are that they should be doing? Oh, <laughs> I think that the two places to connect with me best um, in terms of electronic connection are uh, through my newsletter called The Cottage, which comes out once or twice a week, depending upon how busy I am, actually. <laughs> and um, that's on Substack. You can you can sign up for that by going to the platform Substack itself or by going to my website dianabutlerbass.com and there's a very clear link that says newsletter sign up mm. and so you can do that and then you just get an email from me um, once or twice a week with my with my newsletter stuff that I'm thinking stuff that I'm writing uh, things that I'm doing um, and then the other place is I'm kind of noisy on Twitter <laughs> <laughs> people seem to like my Twitter account or they or they get really upset at me on Twitter <laughs> and so that's the place I think I'm called heretic most often and so if you're kind of into those sorts of things well welcome to my club um, <laughs> and, and that's a that's a fun place to follow me but then I'm on you know just Facebook and Instagram mm -hmm. Um, you know, are the also the normal places. So, so pretty much everywhere. Yeah, where people hang out on social media. Except I don't do TikTok, and I haven't tried Clubhouse and all those things. I'm yet. not doing it. I haven't either. I don't even have a TikTok. I don't want a Clubhouse. <laughs> I, I barely like Instagram. Um, I, I I don't actually like social media. Um, but it's I the world that we live either. in. <laughs> so. But it's interesting because I do get to meet cool people sometimes. And um, the main reason I'm on Instagram right now and trying to do anything with it is because uh, uh, one of the, the gifts of this crazy vocation is you get to know other writers. And uh, one of the people I've gotten to know in recent years um, is Marianne Williamson. Mm. And uh, Marianne, she said, oh, I want to interview you on Instagram. <laughs> you can interview people on Instagram? Yeah, you can apparently. And um, huh. so she says, I want to have an Instagram chat with you. And I said, Marianne, I don't even know how to use it. It's Instagram. on your phone. That doesn't, I, why would I want to do an interview <laughs> on this? Uh, anyway. I so she's very good at it though. <laughs> and <laughs> so apparently we're going to do that but i i'm not sure i'm not sure when uh, but uh, yeah people connect you know and um i don't know it's all very mysterious to me but i i'm glad for the opportunity to hear people's voices and yeah you know receive their both their critiques and their kindnesses mm -hmm. um yeah. through social media good well i appreciate what you do and i appreciate you being on this morning and for working with the schedule and etc but I've, I've it's been it's been a joy it's always a joy to listen to you but it's a joy to, to talk with you so Thank you very much. Each other in the image of love. Strangers and neighbors and wonder, we are all alike. Captivated and exiled under the same stars tonight. That question that Diana posed back of not who or what is God, but if God, I've wrestled with that quite literally almost every day since she asked me and I still don't know how to answer that question and I love that absolutely love that oh, curious your thoughts on today's episode or any of the past ones and want to say thank you for your support of the show 
And thank you to Remedy Drive for their music in this week's episode. Next week is going to be fantastic. So I have Jamar Tisby on the show. And then right after that, I'm going to bring on musicians Ryan Hood. And uh, that is another fun one. So support the show if able. If you can't, rate and review it or just tell a friend. Send me some feedback. I am amazed by all of you that continue to download this show. And I'm so thankful. Be blessed. I hope you have an amazing week. And we'll connect again soon. Don't kiss me